welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. I'm Ryan Rogers, and also a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 4, Quinta Renus, recorded here in the darkening evening of March 12th, 2022. You're listening to Snail's Death of a Dream, and the outro today is Sleepyhead. Thanks again to Snail and Christoph Oaks for the use of his music. You can find his album on Spotify and Bandcamp. We have some corrections today. First off, Wayne's World said that it was the Bee Gees who wrote songs that everyone likes, not ABBA. I'm sorry. Uh, please stop harassing me. Uh, my high school history teacher probably did teach me about Anne Frank and Helen Keller, probably, though I have absolutely no recollection of it. People with red hair aren't direct descendants of bastard children crossbred with Neanderthals. That's my bad, too. We have some dinosaur news. There's a new little theropod from Uzbekistan. The Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology published new material and diagnosis of a new taxon of Alvarez saurid from the Upper Cretaceous Besecti Formation of Uzbekistan. Disassociated but well-preserved postcranial bones from the Turonian period of the late Cretaceous found at the Pisecti Formation, and it looks like they're calling it Zarionix Eski. I'm guessing at the nomenclature here, but it's possibly referring to the Uzbeki province of Zarakuduk, and Onyx is Greek for claw. Thanks to the I Know Dino podcast for reporting that Eski is an Uzbek word for old. So thanks to Garrett and Sabrina. They had great access to the article and do a great job breaking down uh, the details in their episode 382, A New Stegosaurus, Alvarez Saurids, and Dinosaur Injuries. So you can check that out. And so that makes it Esk's Zaracuduck Claw. Beyond the important skeletal differences between Zarionix and other similar animals like Patagonicus and Mononicus, this gets ranked as one of the oldest members of its clade, the Parvacursorinae. The Parvicursorinae family are small, long-legged, highly specialized flightless birds with fused wrist elements and a posteriorly directed pubis, stout forelimbs, and compact bird-like hands, massive breast and arm muscles, and long tube-shaped snouts filled with tiny teeth. They emerged in late Jurassic Asia and then propagated into the late Cretaceous of South America and North America. These little animals in particular had a pinched foot, whatever that means. Zarionix is considered the geologically oldest Alvarez saurid known, meaning the latest surviving member of the species yet known, and remained in that Asian locality. There's a new stegosaur. The Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology has also published on one of my favorite types of dinosaurs, the stegosaurs. There's a new one that's described in a paper named New Stegosaurus from the Middle Jurassic Lower Member of the Shaksumyao Formation in Chongqing, China. Bashanosaurus primitivus is the earliest record of Stegosauria in Asia and represents one of the earliest records of this clade from anywhere in the world in terms of the rock that it was excavated from and supported by phylogenetic analysis, which also indicates that it's one of the most primitive Stegosaurs known. The paper argues Bashanosaurus is the earliest diverging Stegosaur along with Chongkingosaurus and suggests that the Stegosaurs have Asian origins. Stegosaurs are all a little different in how they wore their plates and spines and spikes, but Bashanosaurus is described to resemble a Scalitosaurus, who had different sized and different shaped spines and knobs running from its head to the tip of its tail and all across its hind. 
the holotype CLGPR V0000-6-1 housed at the Chongqing Laboratory of Geoheritage Protection and Research was uncovered from the Shaxiumiao Formation. It's comprised of a dorsal vertebra, two caudal vertebrae, a right scapula, right coracoid, left femur, left tibia, left fibula, a metatarsal, a plate, and two spines and some ribs. Its name means Primitive Vashon Lizard. All right, we'll start off. With me for some fun this episode is Buddy Rob. Uh, we met during the running of the Bulls in Turin in 2016. Uh, have you recovered from your knee injury? Uh, a little bit, but my other one's a little messed up now. So. Okay. <laughs> for real, how's your knee? As you get older, you just, your body falls apart. Yeah, but running with the Bulls doesn't help. No, not at all. <laughs> my, my parents' experience, you can relate to this or not, uh, when they went to... Spain was that everywhere they went they were ordering off the menus and everything was in Spanish and it just turned out that all of their meals whether they liked it or not continued to be bull testicles and that's just what they serve you in Spain when uh, you speak English I didn't have that problem okay. I, also people, I was also hanging out with people that spoke Spanish so they'd tell me what I was ordering they're like don't get that thing on the menu surprised if it was on the menu yeah well yeah they must go through a lot of them after they must be just giving them away after the running of the bulls. There must be just so many uh, <laughs> available to serve. <laughs> so you tell me that you have not read this novel. I have not read the novel. Okay. I want to think everything. I think I've seen all the Jurassic Parks, though. Okay. So um, this chapter that I'm working on has nothing to do with, happen with anything that happened in any of the films, but maybe you might be able to relate to stuff that happens to the characters that are in it. It'll be interesting. We'll see. Okay. Like having relatable characters is important. So we should see, maybe this would be a book for you. We'll find out. And I guess that the chapter is called Punta Arenas. Have you ever been to Costa Rica? No, I didn't make it to Costa Rica because I got stuck in Guatemala when COVID hit. Mm. Costa gone from there to El Salvador and then down to uh, Nicaragua and then Costa Rica after that. Okay. Have you ever been... It was filmed in Hawaii. You ever been there? Nope. Don't you like to travel? Yeah, I've only been to like 40 countries. <laughs> so it sounds like you went to some pretty slick spots uh, down south. What What did you like about being down there? Did, like, did you get into any rainforests or anything tropical? Like, what, Or were you just kind of... What did you see? Yeah, I, was, uh, like I spent probably two weeks in the, in the jungle in Guatemala. Yeah? Uh, just staying at a hostel down there. Going to a couple of national parks, doing some hiking. What were the parks like? The, absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely beautiful. Just like this crisp uh, turquoise blue water coming down off waterfalls that you could swim in and slide down. And then you could climb up like a kilometer and a half tall mount. Well, not really mountain, more of a hill. Mm -hmm. but, I mean, it was steep climbing. Climb up and you get the lookout point, look at one of the vantage points from the top where you can see everything and just get a view of how many more waterfalls there actually are. And, wow. That's cool. It's a huge part. What color was the sand? Uh, in Costa Rica, well, not, it was just it was limestone. Limestone? Well, okay. Not limestone, but it was just stone bottom, right? There's no sand on the, in the waterfalls or in that national park. Mm -hmm. And then when it was at the freshwater lake, the sand was just, you know, it's typical sand color. That's really cool. So what kind of wildlife do you see? Parrots, monkeys, their version of a raccoon. The Kudamundi or a Cody or whatever they're called? Uh, hang on, let me look it up. I think it's called a Cotamundi. Yeah, I, got a photo, I got a photo of it. So Cotamundi's in the book. Uh, they want to find... The, howler monkeys are in the book, and she wants to... The character wants to see a sloth. I didn't see any sloths. I can't imagine you would. They would sit very still, and they sit in the dark. <laughs> yeah, there's butterflies. What else? 
and so you got to see like wild parrots and wild monkeys. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool. And we were doing the zip line, and the monkeys were all jumping around and stuff. Uh, wow. So you could relate to the characters in the book. They saw this stuff as well. That's fun. If you ever read it, you'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you probably see it and go, oh, this is totally fake. It doesn't make any sense. One of the things that happens to the characters in the book that have been to this place that you can relate to, that see animals that you can relate to, is that this girl, uh, she's eight, kind of runs off so she doesn't have to listen to her parents fighting. And she finds a little lizard that's in that comes out of the bush. She gets bit. Have you? How, how many animals have you been bit by? One, two, three, four, five. Oh, ten or twelve! Oh my god! <laughs> so give me the list, man. How many of them were like uh, prehistoric clone dinosaurs? Uh, none. No, no clone dinosaurs. Two of them. Um, three of them, right? Three of them were dogs. Oh my god! A couple cats, mm-hmm. right? Because cats get bitey and break the skin. And then, like this funky beetle thing, just like bit me the one time. That one hurt. That one hurt a lot. Wow! And then a snake, at least one snake, skinks. So little blue tail, blue tail racer skinks. Okay, you got bit by lizards. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. I mean, yeah. good, yeah. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, Terrific, yeah, excellent. Yeah, this interview is going as planned. Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm trying to think. And then I'm, like turtles and crayfish and stuff like that over the years. They, like, broke the skin? You got bit by a turtle? Yeah. Wow. What kind of turtle? Like a snapper? Yeah, just a little, little baby snapper. Okay. People don't have to know this, but you, you did quite a bit of scouting. Was this involved with scouting that most of this no, intrusion no, on the wildlife? I was hanging out at my grandmother's farm when I was little. Okay, right on. Yeah, when you're little is when that happens all the time, isn't it? You don't know any better. Don't put your finger in yeah. between the cage where the parakeet is, and you go, why? And you put your finger in, and the parakeet shows oh, you right God. away. <laughs> yeah, they tell you right away why you don't put your finger in there. <laughs> they, don't, they don't tease you for like two minutes or anything like that. They tell you right away, oh, don't put your finger in here. So the, the, this little girl gets bit, she goes to a clinic, and uh, the clinic is in Punta Arenas. And uh, there, they get a, uh, the doctor tells them, or a specialist comes in and tells them, that re- reptile bites are actually very common. And so it's interesting to think that you'd been you bit by quite a few things, like uh, skinks and stuff like that. I guess snake bites count as a common reptile bite. Yeah, yeah it was all like gardener snakes and fox snakes and stuff that I got bit by. Mm-hmm. So this is, what's the name of the city? Punta... Punta Arenas. I looked up the name Punta Arenas, and it means something like Sandy Point or something like that. I thought it would have something to do with a bridge, but it doesn't. So there you go. You got bit by reptiles, which apparently is common. You've been to these tropical places and into the rainforest. You've seen wild animals in the bush. You've got all the characteristics of being a, a victim in, in one of these books, especially at the beginning. So that you have more to, uh, relate, in, uh, to relate to these characters than you probably would have imagined. Maybe you should read the book. Maybe. So this little girl getting bit is like the the, the beginning of this, the plot that drives people into looking into, well, what are these little animals that are kind of emerging that are biting people? Uh, and you could probably remember that from the second movie. So um, yeah. there aren't a lot of people that I've gone to the theater to see these movies with. Even fewer of them did I go to see the first film, Jurassic Park, with. Well, we did not know each other in the early 90s. When the anniversary edition came out in 3D, we got to go, which was pretty cool. And so we saw that in, I think, Tecumseh. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yes, that would have like very likely been like short, the Lake Shore Theater there in Tecumseh. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And so I remember yeah. we went in. and we saw it, that one in 3D, didn't we? Yeah, it was in 3D. That's how they re-released it. 
Yeah. It was neat. I remember when we saw it in 3D, it had been a while, I guess, since I'd seen some of it. And while the dinosaurs and everything were just fine, I remember at the very beginning when you're watching the foliage uh, brustling as, like, the tractor is bringing in the, the crate. And I remember just even going through when they, like, uh, the lawyer is going into the mine to talk to somebody who's, like, excavating Amber. And they say, oh, you'll never get Grant because he's like me. He's a digger. Those scenes that are kind of less prominent in the greater scheme of the film really popped because you, you, there was more environmental work and so you got more of the foliage in the foreground and you got like coasting on a river and I found that the 3D really enhanced some of the, the tertiary moments in the film that instead of the prominent ones. What did you think about seeing it in 3D? You told me you had a different experience with it. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, like, the first couple times I saw films in 3D I got a little motion sick. <laughs> uh, my, my head didn't like it very much. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do remember like the T-Rex coming out and just like seeing the water, the water kind of, the droplets of the water, the droplets of the rain hitting the water puddles mm -hmm. and the water rumble when the T-Rex steps. And like, I mean, they, they, they'd improved the sound at that time too. So you could, you could really feel the bass in the theater. Yeah. Uh, like that's a, that's a scene like even though I was expecting it, cause I'd seen the movie, I don't know how many times you made me watch it before. Um, that just kind of just stuck with me. Cause you could feel you could feel it and you could understand the fear that was coming out of the people in the car and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then when the uh when newman's trying to run away with the samples and you had that stupid dinosaur spit in his face that was hilarious in 3d in 3d yeah yeah newman <laughs> um, i can't think of his name so i gotta, I gotta refer to a seinfeld name no that's right no he's he's newman that's fascinating i i'm getting goosebumps just thinking of it what made that really stand out though in theater especially with the surround sound and in 3d and all of that was that when they put that film together, there isn't a musical score during the Tyrannosaurus attack. The, you're no. just there and you just hear what's happening. You oh. just hear the screams. You just hear the raindrops. And and there's something really, really special. They just let that scene speak for itself. And there, I think, you know, at the end they have like a musical score where there's like flourishes of, of, of instruments that uh, culminate in the in the uh, the banner falling and the Tyrannosaurus roaring, and it gives you that kind of final crescendo to to wrap up the movie. But during that those first moments, the the big attacks, and then same with the Dilophosaurus. As soon as the dinosaurs start getting out, they don't have a musical background to it, and so you are kind of living in the moment as opposed to a dramatization. I mean, obviously it is, but it doesn't feel like that as much. And I think, yeah, in three D, that was reinforced because it was right in your face. <laughs> For sure. And then you threw up, of course, because... I had to like, sit in my car for like 20 minutes before I could drive home. <laughs> so when people... <laughs> so <laughs> I don't want to get into a bad story. You t I'll cut this if you don't like it. The funniest story about throwing up I've ever seen in my whole life was... Uh, so we lived in Windsor together for a long time. And of course, Windsor's famous for garbage strikes. Yeah. yeah. And so we had, what, 110 days of no garbage pickup? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or something stupid. You can look it up. It's a real thing. And uh, we went out, and I think you guys, you and some of the guys, so Rob and I lived together, uh, had a night out, and it was a kind of a casual morning. We were all going to, you guys went out and got pierogi fries for breakfast. <laughs> you came back and said, all right, we're going to clean up some of this garbage, and we're going to drive it down to the dump. <laughs> And so there are these garbage bags that have been sitting out in the street for weeks. In the sun. In, in the summer, in the sun. In the, well, I mean, it's 100 days. It was every season that by that point. <laughs> <laughs> so these guys with too much beer in them from the night before. 
and pierogi fries on top of it decide they're going to go through <laughs> months of garbage. Anyhow, the funniest story about throwing up ever. <laughs> Must have been four of you. And there's just, you're taking turns. <laughs> it's so repulsive. <laughs> and it was, you know, I thought you guys did anything wrong. It was just a bad scene. <laughs> there was well, a couple times at that house where there's things that happened that just made me just, made my stomach turn. <laughs> So we saw the first movie together. When was the? Did you see the first one in theaters? Yeah, I think my dad took me. Yeah, I think I went with my dad and my brother to see the first one in theaters. The second one I know I saw in theaters. The third one I can't remember. It had the and Spinosaurus. The, the third one. Or uh, the new one, Jurassic. The the new ones with Chris Pratt and mm-hmm. all that are. They're decent, but. Did you like dinosaurs a whole lot growing up, or was that kind of? I've always liked dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to think of things that big living on this planet, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, predators that huge, they just, well, they die out because their food source disappears, but... <laughs> well, it's incredible that it's, it's very, very challenging to consider a modern analog for what they were because we don't have things that are like multiple tons that are also carnivores, so to speak. We don't yeah. have... And even when you look at the bird analog, birds don't have teeth. And no. these things had massive teeth. <laughs> and and birds aren't many, many tons. And they were massive. And and even thinking of like their posture and how they moved, like it's so hard to look at things because bird like nothing's got that big long tail either. And dinosaurs have huge, big, thick, long tails. And and stuff just doesn't do that anymore. And it's um, it's really hard to imagine. And so that you're right. It's just how did these things operate is so confusing. And when you when you try and like you trust what you see, I guess in terms of representations that people make of dinosaurs in 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 media and, and I guess in paleo art. But even having great big huge clawed hands on a biped just isn't common. It's so bizarre. No, I mean like the the closest things that you would get to what would be small dinosaurs nowadays would be like the crocodilian family and like the Cayman dragon kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Where they're both, they're both semi-aquatic though. Iguanas are, iguanas can get pretty big, but still for compared to a dinosaur, they're nothing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. It's a couple pounds. A lot of people poo poo the second film where the, the Tyrannosaurus goes through like a neighborhood and through like downtown. But I know as a kid, like, just what would it be like to have a, a Tyrannosaurus walking through town? I thought about that a lot. <laughs> and, and uh, like, I, I would often think about, like, would it be, it'd be so cool to just have a T-Rex sitting in the backyard or something like that. And uh, I thought, I mean, as in terms of making a good movie or, like, a, a straightforward story that made sense, maybe that wasn't the right choice. I think I heard Spielberg was quoted as saying, listen, this is the last chance I'm going to get to put, you know, do a Godzilla movie. Although, he's Spielberg. He can make any movie he wants, but... He decided he was going <laughs> to take Jurassic Park and put the Tyrannosaurus in San Diego. So that's what he did. But I remember liking that scene a lot. T-Rex in the backyard drinking out of the pool. Super cool. I don't know if I'd want to, uh, I don't know if I'd want to drink pool water. <laughs> no. <laughs> cool. I, could do, I could do some damage to your insides. You know what? I think you're right. You just found a hole in the story. This doesn't make sense. That whole film is flawed. <laughs> 
You might make a good point that maybe these films are better to just enjoy than they are to read too much into. <laughs> because they don't hold up with careful scrutiny very quick uh, for very long. Well, you know what? Most most things in sci-fi, unless you're like getting into the Star Wars, Star Trek, they don't even Star Wars didn't put a lot of thought into like how the Death Star worked or anything like that, right? It's just yeah, mm-hmm. it's a big thing that shoots a big laser, blows up planets. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it's got the same flaw that the Matrix had in that you came up with a, a dynamite premise that everybody was into, and then when you tried to flesh it out, and like, no, 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 it makes sense. Watch this. It's like ooh, <laughs> it gets a little a little fuzzy after that. <laughs> It's still made for interesting movies, but you're right. Maybe they're not meant for for more careful considerations. And I don't know that they were but asking for that either. Also, a lot of times, like the first movie would hold up so well, and then the second and the third and the fourth, not so much because they're just trying to rush out a couple more movies to cash in on the the fanfare of the first movie, right? And make mm-hmm. a couple extra bucks. Yeah. And a lot of times they're not putting the same budget into the sequel or the or the the third one. You know, if they were only making $250 million after, after each terrible Jurassic Park film, if they continued doing that and subjecting themselves to only $250 million profit per film, think how far we could have come in terms of dinosaur animatronic technology <laughs> had we been continuously making these films after all this time. Instead of stopping for all these years and then coming back, we could have cured all kinds of problems with uh, better animatronic dinosaurs and... I mean, if you wrote three, four, five, six more movies over that period of time, think of the possibility of at least one script being very, very good. I mean, they could have done something. <laughs> or pieces of scripts being able to put together into one good one. Well, consider too, like, did you like, what did you like better? The the last Star Wars movie or some of the Mandalorian stuff? Uh, I like the man. Uh... I like the Mandalorian a lot, a little bit more than the uh, the Rise of Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, when you go back into it, like the, the Clone Wars stuff for Star Wars was insane. The Rebels stuff was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bad Batch, the Bad Batch is a great series. Mm-hmm. It's kind of more of an extension of the Clone Wars, but I think there's an argument to be made that when you take this, like in these big films, they try and make the stakes as big as possible, and it just kind of gets ridiculous. But when you take them mm-hmm. down and turn it into like a character study or shrink the story down to where the stakes are a little bit more manageable, where you're not, you don't have to fight a whole fleet of Death Stars, yeah. right? You change the scope yeah. a little bit so it makes, it's not ridiculous that you get a better story. And I wonder, I think there's, there's a lesson to be learned for you reel it in and, and do something a little bit smaller in, where you get a little bit more closely connected with what's going on. Because I think the storytelling that's being done in the, some of the Disney Plus stuff far exceeds the storytelling that was being done, I think, in the larger, uh, you know, major motion Star Wars films, I think. Then again, I have uh, I can't really disagree with you on that. I can't disagree with you on that. So, like, when you get down into it, like, even the stuff that came before Disney Plus, like going back to the Clone War, the Clone War series, mm-hmm. I mean, that was seven or eight seasons, I think it was seven seasons or eight seasons long. Mm. And like, that's where you find out, that's where you learn about Ahsoka Tana. And that's where you, and then Ahsoka's stories continued through the rebels. And now she's getting her own series. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Right. And she's appeared in Mandalorian and she's appeared in Bubba Fett. And they're really, they're really working on that character because well, the, the fans of the cartoon were just, they loved Ahsoka because they watched her grow up through that whole series. Mm-hmm. So at what point do you think the Mandalorian is going to run into Ewoks 
on the forest moon of Endor. Um, he needs to get a bounty to go and catch a whole bunch of Ewoks and then instead befriend them all. And then they become his... I don't know what they would even do. It seems like that show will jump the shark around that point. Because they can even bring in the old cartoon theme song. It'd be awesome. <laughs> you know what? I think you could, you're more likely to see like Ahsoka's character going to Endor or something like that than you are to see Mando, I think. All right. Unless Mando goes there to hide out with Grogu. Well, what is the famous Star Wars line? Make it so? Isn't that how you get to Endor? No, no, that's Star Trek. All right, all right, all right. You caught me there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I can't pass anything through your scrutinizing eyes. So with that, I think we'll leave it. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you watch the other movies or something like that, would you like to come back and do this again? Oh, that's, that's always fun talking to you, right? All right, all right. I always come back and talk to you again, man. All right, thanks to my buddy Rob for, for joining me on the podcast. That was extraordinary. Thank you, Rob. Um, and let's segue. Once again, I'll figure out segues one of these days. One day, me segue good. Let's get into our chapter for today, Punta Arenas, from pages 15 to page 20. Here's our synopsis. Dr. Cruz puts Tina in an oxygen tent after she's fallen desperately ill from a mysterious lizard's bite. The doctor calls for a specialist, Dr. Gutierrez, to help identify the lizard that bit Tina so they can apply any anti-venom if necessary. After hearing the unusual description of the lizard, Gutierrez identifies it as a basilisk lizard. They're not poisonous, but he explains Tina must be allergic to reptiles. Which characters do we get? We have Dr. Cruz. He treats and stabilizes Tina. He appears, quote, pretty capable because he speaks excellent English and trained at medical centers in London and Baltimore. He radiates competence. He examines Tina and double-checks the details in her report about the lizard and is impressed that she's so observant. Christina Tina Bowman, or Tina Bowman, has become desperately ill from the lizard bites. She's given steroids to help her with breathing. She's bitten on her left arm and draws a picture after, so she must be right-handed, and she drew it in response to the questions from admitting officials. So in triage, she must have drawn this picture to describe the lizard that bit her. And remember, she is eight years old. Ellen Bowman asks if her daughter will be all right. Then she worries about the lizard and why it would bite Tina, wonders if it has rabies, and repeats what her daughter said about the lizard to Dr. Gutierrez, and then instructs Tina to say thank you to the doctor before concluding, quote, See, Mike told you she was observant. And that's my emphasis. Basically, Ellen just kind of worries, then does a little bit of parenting and just parrots what other people already said. She doesn't have much of a role here. And Mike Bowman... He's very concerned for his daughter. He was rightly shaken after finding her screaming hysterically with her left arm covered with small little bites. And Dr. Marty Gutierrez is a bearded American man in khaki shorts and shirt with a soft southern accent. Dr. Marty Gutierrez is a senior researcher at the Reserva Biologica de Carrara, which uh, is across the bay, they say. He's not a Cabo Blanco specialist, because there is none, so he may not be familiar with the animal that bit Tina. He is a field biologist from Yale, who's worked in Costa Rica for five years. Yale is in Connecticut, but it's unlikely the soft southern accent is from there, as Connecticut would have more of a New England-esque accent than a southern one. He's diligent in examining the evidence, and after hearing the unusual description of the lizard, Gutierrez identifies it as a Basiliscus amoratus which is a fictional basilisk lizard. He tells us lizard bites are fairly common. He later doubts that he's correctly identified the lizard and wonders what else it may be. And the lizard is further described. It is a green lizard the size of a chicken or crow. It stands on its hind legs. It vocalizes like a mouse and chirps and squeaks. Reptile saliva contains serotonin, which 
causes tremendous pain, says Gutierrez. Its saliva has, quote, several extremely high molecular weight proteins of unknown biological activity, it says on page 19. We have some localities. There's Punta Arenas, which this is named after. Uh, that's a Spanish word for Point Sands, or Sandy Point, maybe. Clinica Santa Maria is a modern hospital, spotless and efficient. Uh, St. Mary's Clinic must be at Punta Arenas, although it doesn't say, and it has a modern laboratory in the basement. Cabo Blanco, um, that's where the Bowmans escaped from and rushed back to Punta Arenas. It's very remote. And the Bowmans may have been the first people there in several months, according to page 16. Cabo Blanco means White Cape, and it was on a mangrove swamp. And there's a university lab in San Jose where a sample of the unidentified lizard saliva is to be sent. With some interesting stylistic techniques here, I think uh, Creighton does a great job with pacing. He skips over the, quote, frantic drive back to civilization, bringing us right to the clinic, which is nice, out of the adventure and back into the mystery building. There's some good characterization. Tina says things like, uh-huh, and acts out motions like bobbing her head up and down like a chicken, uh, which are good characterizations for an eight-year-old. So we get, we get a real feeling that Crichton has channeled his inner eight-year-old as he writes his character. Uh, we have some more similes. Uh, <laughs> again, they're, they're what we can, came to expect from Crichton so far. They're pretty boring. Uh, flecks of sticky foam on her arm like a foamy saliva. So he's describing foamy saliva like... Foamy saliva. That's kind of unimaginative. Chirped or squeaked? Like a mouse, would you say? And uh, so there's another one where I guess the simile is pretty boring. And uh, Tina says, like a bird. This references uh, the footprints, uh, the walking, the toes, all of that was like a bird. So all of these things are very straightforward. Not a lot of imagination going into his his uh, similes. So let's uh, talk about this a little bit more. I, there might be an element of xenophobia here. Mike Bowman judges Dr. Cruz's medical capabilities by his proficiency in English. And he's also surprised to find that Gutierrez is American. I don't know if he was expecting less from somebody who wasn't American. But um, he seems to make a judgment that, ah, you speak English, you therefore must be a very good doctor. And I wonder if there's a, a component of xenophobia that's a part of that. Mike Bowman's kind of, I don't know, he's written it's a fairly... Dumb, if we go later on to find out, you know, discuss how f feminism and femininity is portrayed in this book, we need to stop and talk about what masculinity looks like, too. And Mike Bowman's kind of not a great example of, of a compassionate, listening individual. The dinosaurs. The Procomps Ignathus dealt a profusion of small bites the size of a thumbprint, leaving behind flecks of sticky foam like a foamy saliva. The arm reddened and swelled, and Tina began having trouble breathing. A green lizard the size of a chicken or a crow. It stands on its hind legs, and it vocalizes and chirps and squeaks like a mouse. So there we go. It's one of our first really well-described dinosaurs in the book. Good stuff. In terms of tracking the mysteries and things like that, we have to do our due diligence here. We need to track the evidence and follow the bouncing ball. The narrative follows three samples of the, the saliva that were taken from, the uh, I guess, the wounds on Tina's arm. One was for analysis at the clinic, a second is to be sent to San Jose, and a third is to be kept frozen for backup. That's said on page 16. However, analysis on the first sample is cancelled because Gutierrez identifies the lizard, and so its toxicity was no longer a worry. That's on page 18. Although a preliminary fractionation, I don't know what that word means, showed, quote, several extremely high molecular weight proteins of unknown biological activity. So there we are. We're getting a little tease that this is something unusual. Once Tina is discharged, the day clerk threw out all the saliva samples. 
So they're all gone. As she was no longer a patient. All three are discarded, except the clerk notices a red tag on one of them, which indicates it was intended to be shipped to a university lab in San Jose. He takes it out of the trash, and I suppose that he does that. So one of the three samples remains. I wanted to keep an eye on that. And here we are, I guess, discussing feminism, the portrayal of women in this book so far. Ellen Bowman is relegated to a worrisome mother who concern, whose concerns are often dismissed as nothing to worry about. Lizards don't carry rabies, for example. And is motherly and coaxing her daughter to say thank you to the doctor before insisting, Mike told you she was observant. She worries about her child, repeats what a few people said, and that's it. Any agency of her own has been taken away. She's not allowed to have her, her plastic surgery and is relegated to parroting what her family members say. She repeats what Tina says in describing the dinosaur. She repeats what Mike says about uh, Tina being observant. And, uh, and she's just stuck, I guess, worrying about how they're doing. And that's it. Um, if you're familiar with the term MacGuffin, I think that this Procomps Ignathus, this, this mysterious little lizard that's from the beach, uh, this is the MacGuffin that's driving the plot forward. People got to keep pursuing the MacGuffin. And that, uh, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. How does this tie into earlier pages? Well, there's a lot of mystery building. It's continuing to add mystique to what's going on. What is this strange lizard that's biting people? Is it connected to the unusual resort? Is this the raptor? Cruz hasn't seen these bites before. They're already disappearing, becoming difficult to make out. He's fortunately taken photos for reference and taken some samples of the sticky saliva. Gutierrez is about to write off the unusual lizard as a basilisca moratus, but something nags at him. Tina proves herself to be very observant, and her description of the lizard's details are all wrong. The neck is much too long, the hind legs with only three toes instead of five, the tail is too thick, and it's raised too high. These all bother Gutierrez. Dr. Cruz double-checks with Tina about the number of toes on the lizard, and she confirms three, and then reaffirms her characterization as, quote, observant, and that's on page 20. And uh, so Cruz reports these findings back to Gutierrez. This unusual lizard intrigues him, believing that it's puzzling. And he's wondering if there have been any other lizard bites, and Gutierrez asks Dr. Cruz, notify him if there are any other bites. If you have anything you want to contribute or add or think I totally muffed up here, let me know. You can send me a, a message, and we'll get that feedback into the into the podcast. It would be my pleasure. So signing off, I, I want to say thanks again to my great buddy Rob for being a guest today. He, uh, he didn't know what to expect, and he did a terrific job. I love you, dude. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for joining me, too. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything that you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryanesrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Parkcast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens Funny Pages, Tomb of the Undead Graphic Novel, The Second Lap Graphic Novelettes, The Infantry, and The Worst of the Wall, The King Street Gamers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me, I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, and also not that.